Our second reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 32 through 40. You can find it on page 70 in your pew Bibles. Jesus is speaking. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed for action and have your lamps lit. Be like those who are waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that they may open the door for him as soon as he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. If he comes during the middle of the night or near dawn and finds them so, blessed are those servants. But know this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A few years ago, on the game show Family Feud, a woman named Anna Sass had one of the show's epic fails. She needed to score just 18 points for her family to win $20,000. Now, 18 points should have been easy, but Anna got zero. One of the questions she was asked was to name a place where people check their watches. She couldn't guess even one. Can you? The number one answer was the airport. And tied for number two were doctor's offices and, you may have guessed it, church. That survey proves what many of us have long suspected. A lot of people, even regular churchgoers, find worship boring. Here are some of the things I've heard over my years as a pastor. I like worship, but it's so routine and predictable. It's the same thing every Sunday. Everything is programmed. Nothing's a surprise. Jesus isn't boring. So why is worship boring? Another I've heard, I love that our worship is communal. We all come together as the body of Christ, but I struggle when I look around and realize who isn't here. And from many young people, some in my own house, how does worship have anything to do with the problems of the world? I just don't see the connection. Here at First Presbyterian Church, there are lots of reasons that we come to worship. For some, it's the music that nourishes us. For others, it's the beauty of the sanctuary and the feeling of this time that's set apart. For others, it's all about the takeaway, a reminder each week of what's really important to put everything in perspective. For still others, it's a chance to see friends that we don't get to see anywhere but here. We come because we know that worship has value 
even when there are things about it we may not like, even if it bores us or offends us or delights us, even when we can't pinpoint exactly why, we know that worship is important. As Christians, worship is something in which we are called to participate, whether it meets our needs or not. But what happens when our worship isn't meeting God's needs? In the reading, we heard Wilson read from the prophet Isaiah this morning, we hear some of the harshest criticism in the Bible. The prophet is clear, the people's worship is not pleasing to God. And it's not just that God has some reservations about certain things they might be doing. It's not that God has a few suggestions about how to make it more interesting. Isaiah is crystal clear. God is disgusted with their worship, sickened by it. Even when the people appear to be following the established rituals and rules of their day and time. So what are they doing that has so offended God? According to the prophet, it's that what happens in worship has no connection to what they say and do in the rest of their lives. The pastor Cam Murchison, who was once an associate pastor of this congregation, tells a story of two white college students standing quietly on a street corner in Memphis, Tennessee, one cold Sunday morning in 1964. The students were anxious as they waited, nervously looking back and forth down the street. The day before, they had been part of an interracial group who gathered to talk about nonviolent activism with civil rights leader and Methodist minister James Lawson. The meeting had been transformative. What they heard from Lawson was not only challenging and hopeful, it demanded that they do something. By the end of the meeting, plans had been made for how to go forward. The very next morning, they decided black and white students would meet up and attend worship together in all white congregations across the city of Memphis. So the next morning, these two students met up on their appointed corner, waiting the arrival of their black colleague, the one with whom they would attend worship at an all-white church, unannounced and probably unwelcome. These two students knew this action was part of their call to discipleship, their response to the Jesus they met in Scripture. But it doesn't mean they weren't terrified. For to show up for worship in a sanctuary of white people with a person of color violated all the unwritten rules of worship in 1964. Reflecting on this missed opportunity, Murchison writes, for reasons unknown, the African-American student never made it to the rendezvous point. To be sure, the cost of discipleship for that student was higher than for the two white students. But what is known, what we know, is the almost shameful relief the two white students felt as it became clear they could refocus their plans and attend worship elsewhere that day without risk. 
we should be clear that nothing that happens in worship pleases God if we are not faithful to God's call in the rest of our lives. Not the beauty of the music or the insights of the sermon or the eloquence of the prayers. According to Isaiah, what God cares about is that what happens in worship is consistent with what we say and do outside these walls. And in case we're wondering just exactly what it is God wants us to do when we leave the sanctuary, Isaiah lays it out clearly. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Isaiah reminds us that worship must lead us to acknowledge and confront the systemic sins of our time, to call out and work against ideologies suggesting that some people are inherently superior to others, to welcome the stranger in need, and to seek justice for children who are not our own, to advocate for those whose social and economic status makes them vulnerable to poverty and abuse. This work begins with worship, because worship leads us to action it leads us to seek justice for the oppressed and the abandoned and the marginalized, whoever that may be in our time and place. And if our worship doesn't lead to that, no matter how dignified or meaningful it might be for us, it might very well be offensive to God. My friends Ben and Alan met in seminary as they were preparing to be pastors. During seminary, they had lots of late-night conversations about how to do church differently, not just for the people who attend, but for the people the church seeks to serve. Then they both got married and started families, and they needed the kinds of jobs that would support those families. So after graduation, they went to work as pastors in traditional Presbyterian churches. Churches that did well by all the typical standards, membership, giving, mission. But then Alan and Ben both began to feel like God was calling them to something new. Alan found he was missing his first career as an organic farmer, and Ben couldn't shake the feeling that God wanted him to do something different. Then one night, Ben had a dream. He dreamed of a church that didn't worship in a sanctuary, but on a farm, as a farm. The dream was so vivid, so real, that when Ben woke up, he did two things. At three in the morning, he got online and bought the domain name farmchurch.org. Then he waited a few hours and called Alan. And after long conversations with their families and their churches, they left their jobs to start Farm Church. It is exactly what Ben dreamed about, a church that is a farm. Their worship services have little to do with sitting in pews, or sitting at all for that matter. Instead, the community comes together to sing and pray and weed and plant and harvest and gather around a table to share a meal. And through their farm, as an integral part of their worship, they are addressing the problem of food insecurity in their community of Durham, North Carolina. 
Farm Church has done something that many churches struggle to do, to make a direct and tangible connection between the work of worship and the work of justice. Now, Farm Church is a kind of extreme example of how integrally connected our worship and work can be. Here at First Presbyterian, we could offer many others. In just this past week, I have learned about multiple ways our members are doing the hard work of seeking justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God. I learned about a nonprofit that one of our members recently founded to collect infant supplies and clothing for mothers in need. Another member appeared on the front page of the paper this week in a story about her work on racial reconciliation. Other members that I have learned about are quietly and anonymously demonstrating extraordinary courage and generosity as they seek justice and seek to serve those who too often go unnoticed. We need to look no further than the people next to us in our pews to learn some of the many ways we can connect worship with what we do in our daily lives. The church word liturgy is a word we use to describe the elements of worship, the things we do in a typical service, our prayers, our songs, our readings. The word liturgy comes from two Latin words, one meaning people and the other meaning work. So one way to think of worship is that it is the work of God's people. In our worship, we have a pretty good idea of what that work is. We gather, we confess, we sing, we listen to scripture read and proclaimed, we give, we pray. All of this work prepares us to go from this place and share God's love and mercy with others, just as God has shared it so generously with us. Worship is the work God has given us. It is work that renews us and equips us to keep working outside these walls, affirming, living the truths we proclaim inside these walls. God doesn't just call us here to meet our needs. God calls us to transform us, that we might go from here to transform the world. True worship is the work of God's people for God's people. In our text today from Luke, Jesus promises that it is God's good pleasure to give us God's kingdom, but he also tells us we have to be ready to receive it. Jesus tells us we should not be afraid, for God is gracious and generous, but he also tells us that we need to be ready to work for the gift of God's kingdom is sustained through the work of seeking justice and showing love to all God's people. At the first ever worship service for Farm Church, Ben and Alan stuck two small signs in the ground at the entrance to the path that led to the area where worship took place. One sign said, welcome, and the other read, watch your step. I'm thinking maybe we should put signs like that at the door of our sanctuary. Because while everyone is welcome here, Isaiah has got me thinking that worship ought to come with a warning. Maybe the greeters at the door should say, hello, welcome, watch your step, or enter at your own risk. 
Or maybe the ushers should take author Annie Dillard's advice and pass out life preservers and signal flares as we head to our seats. Because this sanctuary is both a beautiful and a dangerous place. Maybe in addition to a welcome and a warning as we enter the sanctuary, we should add a sign that people might see as they leave. Something to remind us that worship isn't for ourselves alone, nor is it just for this one hour a week. If Isaiah has anything to say about it, the sign would contain not just words of blessing and comfort, but words of challenge. Words that remind us we each have a part to play in maintaining and sustaining the gift of God's kingdom. What if the sign we saw as we walked out of the sanctuary was this? That was just the prelude. Now, worship truly begins. Amen.